Welcome to yet another episode of Fragments of Fear, a podcast where Rachel Nisbet and myself, Peter Yimstad, discuss lesser known, or at least lesser discussed, Jolly. How are you, Rachel? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Yeah. Since the last episode, we've celebrated our one year anniversary, haven't we? We have, yeah. We've been going now for over a year with Fragments of Fear, so that's very exciting. I can't quite believe it. No, neither can I. It's been a really interesting year because we obviously didn't know if we would get any listeners at all. And we've been doing really well and had some amazing feedback from all you lovely people. So we're really pleased and really keen to keep going. Yeah, I think that's what's really exciting about it. Like, we weren't sure how it would go. It's been really successful. Like, we've had those nice feedback and all of you wonderful people listening to it and supporting us. And now we're all excited because we're thinking about all the films that we want to cover in the future and off the back of what we're doing today we're hopefully gonna do more well-known films than what we usually do like here and there so I think there's lots of potential for some exciting and fun episodes in the future yeah for sure I think I just said exciting about six times there sorry (laughs) well it is very exciting more excitement to come or maybe this is maybe we've peaked maybe this is us going out now (laughs) yeah it's all gonna get worse from here on (laughs) I know We, we try our best but we'll see But there's been some really great news that we've been wanting to tell you about for a while now. We can finally share the news with you. So do you want to do the honours? I was going to say, you can do the honours, Peter. I'll let you do this one. Well, yesterday, Cauldron announced that they're releasing Sergio Pastore's Crimes of the Black Cats. This has been one of our most wanted jally for a really long time. And since all previous releases were compromised in one way or another. So the release alone is really great news. But we're also really proud to be able to say that our podcast episode on the film will be included on the disc so great to be involved in that release in some respects isn't it yeah because we were so excited to cover the film we both really enjoyed the episode and like you say we both really liked the film so then to be included in a physical release of it and then to have our first fragments of fear release if you know what I mean like that's really wonderful and we we're so happy to be asked and big thanks to Jesse over at um, Cauldron Films for facilitating that and you know for supporting what we do um, so yeah very good news. Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, the main thing is obviously getting the film out in a proper aspect ratio and in an English-friendly edition. But like I say, big thanks to Jesse and to Brian at Cauldron for making this happen. They've got some really exciting stuff coming out. Yeah, let's hope there's more in this kind of vein. Yeah. But it'll be interesting for us because when we wa- I think when we spoke about the film originally, we were saying, oh, we wonder how this would look if it was in a better edition and if we could see more of the image and what that would reveal and whatever else. And this gives us a chance to do it now. So hopefully what we talk about in the podcast like still marries up with the film in its new and improved version. Yeah. Something outside of the frame that spoils everything that we've said. But <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to that cat in HD. Yeah. Going mad. It's great that some people will have a chance to see the film for the first time in HD now rather than those ropey editions that have been out. Yeah, and I think, well, I, I know I have a tendency to forget that sometimes these films are quite hard to come by and not everyone can see them. And we get quite a few messages where people go, I really want to see this film. I've not had the opportunity and this should make it a lot easier for people to access the film and hopefully check out the podcast or the extra on the disc. You don't have to hear us waffle on at the start either. 
which is a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> it was Peter's cut of it, which is, let's just get rid of our, this is what I've been up to, this is what I've been watching, because it's probably not very professional. Here are tales at the start of the episode. Yeah, getting down to the nitty gritty straight away instead. Yeah. I think it was one of our patrons, Brian Fitzpatrick, who mentioned on Twitter that this is the second of the films that we've covered that have been released on Blu-ray. See, that's weird, isn't it? That we've only been doing this a year, and two out of 12 films have now had official releases like on well i'm saying that but obviously tropic of cancer and stuff's had one but in murder clinic but yeah hopefully we can see a few of those other ones get released over time and then we can look back in our old age and go oh remember when all of these were obscure and now everybody loves them owns a copy yeah Hopefully it's the plan. Yeah, that would be amazing. There are certainly a few of the films that we've covered that that are deserving of proper releases. Yeah, and we think, I say we think, maybe we know, maybe we think that others are to come. Yeah, we know about some upcoming releases for next year. And without us being able to say anything more, I think it's safe to say that Mm. 2021 has the potential to be a very exciting year. It's going to be a great year. Not even just Italian genre cinema, but Jao in particular, because we've had some really great um, releases this year. But yeah, I think next year is going to be even bigger and better, judging from what we've heard or involved in. Yeah, and we've obviously not heard everything, so probably even more to come. Yeah, so that's something to look forward to in the bleak winter of 2020. There'll be more Jali available next year. Yeah. I don't think there's any other... Oh no, tell me that. On on the subject of release news, we've also got another release that got announced this month, which was a surprise to both of us. Uh, That would be... (laughs) Is it um, filming releasing? I'm drawing a blank here, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Alfonso Brescia's Naked Girl Killed in the Park. Oh yeah, of course. And which is really great news. And that's another fairly obscure film, I'd say. So kind of great from a Fragments of Fear perspective. Although every time they release a film that's more on the obscure side, that kind of whittles down our, our potential like list of films, doesn't it? Yeah, but we've spoken about some films that have had Blu-ray releases before. So I, I think we could probably do that one, especially if it hasn't got a commentary track already. Yeah, we can get away with that. I, yeah, we don't know what the extras are going to be like or... Don't, I don't know if there's a release date yet for it, but coming no. soon. So we'll see. We'll give you details when we find them out. That was one that I wasn't expecting to see. No, especially from Film In, because you kind of associate other labels more these days with Amjali um, releases. But yeah. Yeah, but they're doing a few um, Nashi films as well, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So that's good news. It seems to be like, I, yeah. I don't know um, how some labels operate, but I think there is this desire for a lot of labels to release more. It tends to be American labels that say they want to release more European cinema. Yeah. Um, but when they say European, it's usually Italian Spanish, but that's, yeah. that's great news for us. Yeah. It's been great seeing like a company like Vinegar Syndrome move into the kind of market of European cult cinema. I'm, I'm forever going to be grateful for the corruption of Chris Miller. I know that, that was such a weird like release, like when you would never have expected. No. That would be a good one to do on the podcast, because I think a lot of people still haven't seen that. Yeah, if you haven't seen that, you should definitely pick it up. Right, shall we move on? Yeah, I think we've waffled on long enough. (laughs) (laughs) As always, we'd like to thank our patrons for their financial support of the podcast. Um, We're extremely grateful to you all, and your help really makes a difference, and we've been able to pay our hosting for the next year off the back of um, your pledges. That's great news. And this month, we are delighted to have a few new patrons on board. So a warm welcome into the fold this month to Kasper Novakowski, Mikkel Hamer-Henriksen, Michael Paley, and Christopher Rowe. 
Thank you so much, guys. And as it's our anniversary month, we've got some exciting content on the Patreon at the minute, such as our collaborative visual essay with Alex Bakshev on Dario Argento's Rome and Peter's wonderful fragments mix of music from all of the films we've covered in our first year. So lots of additional content to enjoy. Right, should we get to it then? Let's. As always, we'll be discussing the finer details of the film, including major plot points and the ending. So word of warning, there will be spoilers in this podcast. So on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Andrea Bianchi's 1975 giallo, Nude Perla Assassino, or to use its English title, Strip Nude for Your Killer. A shadow in the night. Footsteps on the stairs. The sound of death. Carl, I'm afraid. What am I supposed to do? Magda, get that film. It's a special infrared film. Get it and develop it. Hurry! On today's episode, we're going to be discussing Andrea Bianchi's 1975 giallo, Nude per l'assassino, or to use its English title, Strip Nude for Your Killer. As we've discussed previously on the podcast, the mid-1970s has passed the genre's golden period, and subsequently we see a slowdown in the number of thrillers produced during this period, with other genres now coming to the fore and increasing in popularity, which creates something of a divergence in the sorts of giallo we see, with many films trying to incorporate other popular styles of cinema, which accounts for the sort of hybrid films of the period, like Massimo Della Mano's What They've Done to Your Daughters and Sergio Martino's Suspicious Death of a Minor. And we see different strands of the giallo start to appear, which we can categorise in various ways, one of which is the sleazier, more sexual giallo, such as Play Motel, Giallo Venezia and Sister of Ursula. They have far more overtly sexual leanings than the thrillers from a year, few years prior. Typically, they're somewhat removed from the more romanticised jelly that came before, perhaps a little bit more prude or salacious in tone. And it's worth mentioning that another style of cinema that was very much in vogue in Italy in the mid-70s was the Commedia Sexy all'Italiana, which were, funnily enough, sexy comedy films, very much slapstick in nature. I guess not too dissimilar to the British carry-on film, if I can make that comparison. It's probably a bit of a, a laboured one, but still. And Edvige Finek, who stars and Strip Nude for Your Killer was one of the most notable actresses in the genre and appeared in many of these films, frequently collaborating with Sergio Martino. And you can see the influence of those films in Strip Nude for Your Killer. There are plenty of crude comedic touches and bits of sexual humour that at times almost veer into giallo parody territory. And it's fair to say that with Strip Nude for Your Killer, Bianchi was very much aware of the blueprint of the early 1970s giallo and was purposely adhering to the tropes of the genre and while styling them up to 11, taking advantage of the public's love of risque sexy comedies and the more sexualised nature of the thriller of the time. So I think when we put Strip Nude for Your Killer into context like that, it perhaps explains why it feels very much like a quintessential giallo but with these humorous over-exaggerated sexual elements um but i'm sure we'll discuss that in finer detail in a wee bit i'm sure we will 
as you mentioned, the film is directed by Andrea Bianchi, who was born in Castel Gandolfo in Rome on March 31st, 1925. He was accepted at the CSC at the tender age of 15 in 1940, and he later worked as a journalist as well as in the opera during the early 1950s. He appears to move to America in the early 1960s, and in interviews he said that he worked as a TV director there for a while. But when it comes to films, his name didn't appear on anything until 1972, when he's credited as co-director on two films, What the People Saw, directed by James Kelly, starring Mark Lester, Britt Eklund, Hardy Kruger, and John Hughes' version of Treasure Island, starring Orson Welles. According to Hugh, he directed Treasure Island himself, and Bianchi, credited as Andrew White, was only listed for co-production purposes and was in fact a second unit director on the film. This might well be the case with What the People Saw as well. Supposedly, Harren Allen Towers brought Bianchi in to adapt the screenplay to punch up the exploitative elements of the film and also to co-direct it. In terms of sleazy contents of what the people saw, you can certainly imagine Bianchi having a hand in the film, but I don't think either of those two could really be considered his. So that brings us to his first own film, which was Cry of a Prostitute, starring Henry Silva and Barbara Boucher, which Bianchi directed at the age of 48 in 1973. It was released in 1974 and it would set the bar for Bianchi in terms of sex and violence. His second film was a sex comedy called Basta con la guerra, Facciamo l'amore, Enough with the War, Let's Make Love, starring Dagmar Lasando, which was released in April 1974. And that brings us up to this episode's film, Strip Nude for Your Killer. The credit says the film is based on a story by Andrea Bianchi and screenplay by Massimo Felisatti. Felisatti was a screenwriter and novelist and he'd previously written jallies such as Michele Lupo's Weekend Murders and Miralia's The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. Both those projects as well as many other that he wrote around the time were written with Fabio Pittoru. They also wrote the script for crime films like The Sicilian Checkmate and Camilo Bassoni's Shadows Unseen and Sergio Martino's Silent Action. In an interview on the Blue Underground release of the film, it seems like Felisati had written the script with Pitoro, and when they saw the violent result of it, they sort of gave Bianchi the story idea to take some of the attention of themselves. I've no idea if this is correct or not, but that's how it goes when you're trying to corroborate info on 45-year-old genre films. So I'll just give a quick synopsis of the film before we discuss it. A young model named Evelyn, tragically dies during a botched backstreet abortion and the cause of death is covered up by those involved, staged to look like a cardiac arrest that occurred in the bathtub of her home. Shortly after the incident, the attending gynaecologist involved in the cover-up is murdered by a mysterious killer clad in a motorcycle helmet and leathers. Meanwhile, at Evelyn's former place of employment, the Albatross Modeling Agency, sleazy photographer Carlo has brought new model Lucia into the fold whilst embarking on a relationship with fellow photographer Magda. The agency comprises of a cast of colourful and duplicitous characters, including riskless agency boss Gisela and her impotent sad sack of a husband Maurizio. Before long, the motorcycle killer strikes again, this time targeting the employees of the agency. Fearing that they are the next targets, Carlo and Magda take on the role of amateur sleuths in order to determine the identity of the killer before they become the next victims. So when we're talking about the players in the film, I think there's a certain name that really stands out and it's the first shadow that we've covered featuring this person. Um, so I get the honour of doing a short bio for probably the most iconic actress of the shadow, Edwige Finnec. 
Of course, there's so much to be said about Edwidge and her illustrious career. So this is really just a brief overview. We might well come back to her another time because I'm sure there's so much more that we could say. It feels like you can't really talk about her career in much detail, like when we've got so much else to cover. So Edwidge Fenech was born on the 24th of December, 1948, to Sicilian mother and a Maltese father in Annaba, Algeria, at the time known as Bone. Fenech's parents divorced when she was young and she moved with her mother to Nice in France. In high school, she cultivated a love of dance and studied both dance and medicine which is quite the combination yeah <laughs> strange one i don't i always take things like that with a pinch of salt but seemingly that's what she did in high school and in her late teens finette was spotted walking on the streets of nice by a talent scout and was subsequently cast in a small role for nobert carbonneau's 1967 film to fold the lee the same year she entered the lady france beauty contest and won first place which granted her a place at the lady europe competition as a representative for france Finnec didn't win the competition, but she did come in third place and drew the attention of an Italian talent scout who landed her role in Guido Malatesta's 1967 film, Samoa Queen of the Jungle, in which she played the titular role. Upon securing the part, Finnec moved with her mother to Rome to pursue her film career. In 1968, she came under contract with Australian director Franz Antel and appeared in Antel's Sexy Susan Sins Again in House of Pleasure during this period. She also appeared in a few German films, such as The Sins of Madame Bovary in, in 1969. During this period, Finnec also appeared in various Italian genre fare and went on to secure roles in the thriller genre, with Top Sensation in 1969 and Mario Bava's Five Dolls for an August Moon in 1970. But it wasn't until 1971 that she really made her mark in the Italian thriller boom, with her role as Julie Ward in 1971's The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, which began a fruitful collaborative period with Sergio and Luciano Martino. Finnec was romantically involved with Luciano Martino for the majority of the 1970s, However, she had a son prior to the relationship, Edwin Finnec, in 1971, and there's been a fair amount of speculation in the Italian press about the identity of the father, thought by some to be Fabio Testi. However, despite having a child in 1971, Finnec was straight back to work and continued to act in the Jalo Filon, establishing herself as a screen queen with performances in All the Colours of the Dark, The Case of the Bloody Iris, Your Vice is a Lot Trim and Only I Have the Key, and Strip Nude for Your Killer. When the thriller began to wane in Italy, Finnec transitioned into roles within the Commedia Sexy all'Italiana, continuing to work with Sergio Martino on films like Cream Horn and Sex the Smile, as well as productions by other directors taking on roles as sexy school teachers, army officers and police officers. During this period, Finnec worked with Lucio Fulci on his 1976 film La Pretora. In the 1980s, Finnec took on more television work and became a regular fixture on the various popular shows of the time. And in 1987, she set up her own production company, Imagine a Cinema, and in the early 1990s, the company began to produce content for television, including the Fennec vehicles Coraggio Diana in 1992 and the Sergio Martino Jago television series Private Crimes in 1993. Films produced by the company include Lena Vertmuller's 1989 historical comedy Ferdinando and Carolina, Catherine Breilat's 2001 film A Fat Girl, and Michael Radford's 2004 adaptation of The Merchant of Venice starring Al Pacino. In her later years, Finnec has mostly withdrawn from acting, but occasionally takes on roles, most notably for English-speaking audiences, a small part in Eli Ross' Hostel 2. As much as Edwidge Finnec is rightfully celebrated for an enigmatic screen presence, beauty and natural sex appeal, she should also be admired for so much more. She made the leap from actress to producer, setting up a successful production company that catered to a female audience, centering women both in front of and behind the camera at a time when it was pretty uncommon. So many of the women we discuss in this podcast fade into obscurity or find it a struggle to obtain work as they age out of roles. So it's really wonderful to talk about Edwidge's successful career and her achievements beyond those iconic roles that we all know her for. 
I completely agree with you that it, she should be celebrated for so much more than than her looks, which is what people a lot of the time just give her credit for. But I think we've said it a few times on on the podcast that she is really a better actress than what she's given credit for. And especially now that you talk a little bit about her career as a producer as well, there's a lot to be admired about Edwidge. We're all in kind of admiration of her beauty and her screen presence, as I've said, but it's just... Yeah, like she's achieved so much more than that. And I think it's quite interesting when you look at her starting out that production company and those um, television series that she made in the early 90s because she plays these characters that are a lot more nuanced and they're older women who are kind of overcoming adversity. And they tend to be like businesswomen or journalists, people that have careers of their own and you know, they dress in suits and they have families and lives and they're not so dependent on men and things like that. And I feel like that's such a change compared to some of the roles that we've seen her in prior. And I like to think that, you know, as she got older, she did want to make these TV series or films that were a bit more representative of women or you know she worked obviously with female directors and with her production companies so that's nice to see I'm glad that she kind of went beyond just becoming a sex symbol she put something else out there oh yeah right shall I move on with the character of Carlo yeah star in his own right really yeah Nino Castelnuovo or as it was christened uh, Francesco Castelnuovo who was born in Lecco on October 28, 1936. Nino grew up in humble beginnings. His father was a pastry chef and he was forced to interrupt his studies to start working to help his family. So Casanovo started working as a mechanic. He moved to Milan and started acting classes, but he was forced to interrupt his studies when it transpired that he'd worked on a TV program called Surli with some actor friends something that was strictly forbidden by the acting school. But he soon found a role in Pietro Giarmi's thriller, some would argue, Proto-Giallo, Un Maladetto Imbroglio, The Facts of Murder, where he starred alongside Giarmi and Claudia Cardinale. He was cast in several prestigious projects, such as Visconti's Rocco and His Brothers, Luigi Comencini's Tutti a Casa, starring Alberto Sordi, Carla Gravina and Martin Balsam, and Carlo Lizzani's Il Gobbo, and perhaps his most high-profile role in Shaktimi's The Umbrellas of Shabu. This brought international attention to him and he was given a role in a US production with Max von Seed of a film that flopped. His subsequent career was less art house and more genre film based, appearing in films such as Jalo, Psych Out for Murder with Adriana La Russa, Face to Face, Rad Lemetsko's Camille 2000. And when work in the film industry dried up in the late 70s, he worked mainly in television, both as an actor and, and as a TV host. One of his later film credits was in the award-winning The English Patient. See, such a an interesting backstory there. I don't know about his father being a pastry chef. Yeah. I know, it's funny, like, yeah, it's, it shouldn't really be funny, but it's just interesting beginnings. Um, I think it's quite a shock because, it, like, you mentioned there, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and I know that's what a lot of people's kind of first introduction to him is. In. Yeah. Um, and then if you watch something that's written for your killer, it's such a contrast to go from a role like that where he's very much, you know, the heartthrob to something where he's playing like a very sleazy misogynistic style character um, yeah it feels like he should have been maybe in a bit more like art house fair or high profile films but obviously didn't quite work out for him no um, i'm not quite sure sort of where it went wrong no but i think that's the international attention after the umbrellas of Cherbourg didn't really work out and i suppose it's a fickle industry and i, I suppose it's easy to get written off if something doesn't doesn't become a hit yeah, exactly. I guess they're lining up a dozen and there's so many actors. Like, I think we tend to think of it as just actresses that the roles dry up pretty quickly and then they're on the scrap heap. But equally it happens with, with um, leading men. 
Yeah. Unfortunately, never worked out for him because he's very good in the films that he's in. I think he's always pretty competent. Seems like yeah. a nice guy as well. Yeah, he seems to be quite happy with his his lot, though. I mean, it doesn't seem to look down on these films, really. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say it later on in the the podcast, but I might as well just say it now. But there's a there's a funny story. I think I mentioned it on Twitter before of him talking about filming a sex scene with Ed Vision for Strip Nude to Free a Killer, and he talks about how embarrassed he was because he kept getting an erection. <laughs> <laughs> he was mortified and he's, he was just very like good natured about it he wasn't because you do get some actors that feel like you say like these films are beneath them and they're a bit snobby but he was just you know kind of laughing along going oh I was really mortified and it was embarrassing you know I've got this like beautiful woman and I can't help it and I hope she was okay about it and he just came across like really well and just thought it was a funny story considering Strip Nude Fear Killer is a film and what it's about yeah. <laughs> it seemed very <Yeah>. fitting <laughs> <laughs> Then we have the boss of the Albatross Agency, Gisela, who is played by Venetian actress Giuliana Ciccini, credited here as Amanda. Now, there's not a lot of information available about Ciccini. She didn't have a particularly notable career in cinema. As a child, she was interested in singing and dancing, both modern and classical, and pursued creative pursuits into her adult life, making her cinematic debut in 1962 in Giorgio Simonelli's Two Samurai for 100 Geisha. Then there's somewhat of a gap in her career, with her next listed credit 12 years later in 1974 with Christian Dion's The Couple de Beau de Boulogne, as well as a few television roles which aren't seemingly credited on her IMDb. But as always, you have to take this information with a pinch of salt because occasionally you'll find credits are incorrect or omitted and we don't recommend using IMDb as a, a source of information. It's just kind of obviously very helpful sometimes to quickly check things. But um, I have a feeling that maybe she was in a few productions that just haven't been added because she was never really in particularly notable roles. Yeah, but unfortunately there's no information either on what Ciccini did in the period between roles. So something we can only really speculate on in 1975 she appeared in a prominent role in Strip Nude for Your Killer in which she was credited under the pseudonym Amanda and that's what a pseudonym she seemed to use during this period when she returned to film. Between 1975 and 1980 she largely appeared in adult films predominantly in France but she was in a few Italian films including Sexy Supermarket and Il Visiaccio both directed by Mario Landi of Shadow a Venezia fame. Ciccini retired from film acting in 1980 and supposedly went on to work in the theatre as an actress and I found one source that said she directed a film in 2003 which I've sadly found no further evidence of so yeah that's a bit of a dubious claim there but yeah there's not a lot of information sadly about her as an actress yeah it's one one of the tricky ones we come across those every now and then I think sometimes the best place for credits and things are usually you know, like books rather than the internet but even then like sometimes you just can't find it because if someone's not really had like much of a notable career not they've not had a standout role then just a lot of the time it's not collected the information yeah well the next actress we've got a little bit more on a well-known face lucia who's played by Femi Benussi, who was born Euphemia Benussi on March 4th, 1945 in Rovinio d'Istria, which is now situated in Croatia. Femi started acting at an early age, appearing at the Teatro del Popolo in Reca. And when she was 19, she moved to Rome with some relatives. As the film industry was crying out for talent, she was soon discovered and cast in Massimo Pupillo's Bloody Pit of Horror when she was age 20 as Femi Martin. She does get work more often than not is due to her physical attributes rather than asking her to interpret any more challenging roles. 
her most prestigious appearance is probably in Pasolini's The Hawks and the Sparrows in 1966, but from then on, it's more or less all genre films, racking up an impressive 87 credits during her 18-year career. She appeared in a fair share of Jolly, mostly in smaller roles, with Deadly Inheritance from 1968 being a notable exception, when she had uh, more of a starring role. During the later half of the 1970s, she appeared mostly in erotic comedies. She's one of those actresses that people always speak highly of, but I think it's just because, she, like you say, she never had those prominent roles in, like, Jolly that she tends to get overlooked a wee bit. Yeah. I mean, but it's crazy to think how many roles she racked up in her short career. Because, I mean, 18 years is pretty good going by industry standards, you know, of the time. But, you know, that is a lot of productions to be in. So she wasn't struggling for work. No, she certainly wasn't struggling for work. I mean, <laughs> how many is that per year? That's that's like four or five productions per year. Like a proper conveyor belt, just like from one to the other. It's yeah. just so funny. Every time we do this, and I feel almost like people are probably sick of hearing it. But so many of these actresses, like same with Edvige Finek there and... I'm Danielle Giordano, I was talking about her on something, and Anita Strindberg, and pe- like the way that they get um, cast is just like in films, pretty much get picked off the street. Or yeah, it suddenly seemed to be that way in the in the sixties. You go into modelling, and then someone goes, "All right, you can come into this film." But then that many productions, I suppose, like you said there at the start, they needed actresses, and that was an easy yeah. way of sourcing them. Because to be honest, I suppose they weren't really hired for their acting ability. Femi is one of those actresses that I can't really think of any challenging roles that she had they very much about her looks yeah it feels almost like mean to say that but and i don't mean it in a mean way but it's yeah i think like that is very much kind of the logic behind her casting in some of these films and interesting yeah. in strip strip noted for your killer you could probably argue that she kind of diverts a fair bit of attention away from edvidge in this one she's very memorable it's a memorable appearance and she appears before we ever see edwish yeah and then it kind of you focus on that i suppose and edwish yeah. is kind of playing a slightly different role but again we'll get into that won't we we will <laughs> get into it all yeah the film starts off with this quite shocking opening a a woman who we later find out is called Evelyn is undergoing an an abortion uh, when she suddenly gasps and dies and in order to hide the true cause of her death most likely due to to abortion being illegal in Italy until May 1978 it was considered a crime against integrity and bloodline the doctor calls somebody called Carlo and together they dispose of Evelyn's body in a in a bathtub with with a water running something that will turn out to be significant later on where they hope nobody will question the course of death when she's found in the tub so quite shocking opening and somewhat reminiscent of of course of Massimo Delamano's what have you done to Solange most people are used to seeing this in, in the blue-tinted version, but on the Arrow Blu-ray, which was l- released last year, it gives us a chance to see it without the tint as well. So, which version of the opening do you prefer? I like the blue tint because in later on when we see the flashback to the scene and we have um, Evelyn staged in the bath and she's lying there and she, it's almost like an artistic composition and it has that kind of melancholic feel, almost like a like is it Picasso's blue series. You know, it feels like a painting and it just seems to kind of put it in this other time in space and it imbues yeah. it with a certain sense of sadness I, d- I just really like that as a, as a kind of stylistic decision and then it contrasts nicely with the red um, scene that occurs in the, the nightclub and these kind of visual pops of colour throughout the film I agree and it was like a hyper reality or yeah a dreamlike reality 
Yeah, I think that there's a hyper-reality that sort of permeates the whole film, really. Not only for these scenes, but it just seems like a version of reality that sort of turned up to 11 in a way. Yeah, everything's very exaggerated. And I think, you know, like that's obviously what people focus on with the film, and we'll get into this later, but the sleaze and the misogyny and how outrageous it is. But I think it's very much intentional. I think that it's supposed to be this exaggerated world. It's not supposed to have kind of elements of realism in it, really. I agree. Shall we talk a little bit more about the thing that you mentioned in the beginning when you talked about the film the the inspiration because i think you were onto some interesting points there about we've talked before about how these jelly made towards the mid 1970s were moving away a little bit from the tried and tested dario argento formula and they started incorporating other ideas into the films because the cinematic trends were somewhat changing and they, they exhausted the dario argento formula a little bit i think you, it feels like you've got elements of, of both the Poliziotesky here if you look at the opening of the film there's a car driving through Milan uh, and that kind of opening was quite often used in the Poliziotesky and the music has definitely got more of a police film vibe with the hard-edged wah-wah guitars and, and the horns than you expect from a giallo perhaps which is usually more sort of lounge music and also like you mentioned the Commedia Sexiale Italiana in that it never misses a beat when it comes to disrobe its actresses and it's often at the expense of the narrative and you can you can sort of tell that it's the ruling genre at the moment because virtually every female character strips during the film. So you get these comedy moments where the police assistant is hot and bothered when he sees um, Lucia and and scenes like that. And like in some ways, if it wasn't for the murders, this could have been a comedy a sexy all'italiana with the agency with a lesbian wife competing with her with her impotent husband for the models. So you definitely see those elements of other genres coming into this film. So we're, we're talking about a film titled Strip Nude for Your Killer. So naturally we have a very provocative title and the film certainly delivers when it comes to sex and sleaze. And Strip Nude for Your Killer has a reputation for being a very misogynistic title, uh, definitely on the sleazier end when it comes to Shelley. But I think it's worth keeping in mind that Bianchi seems very aware of what he's doing here. He knows exactly what his audience wants and goes full tilt with it. And like you say, it very much leans into the kind of sex comedy films. You could almost be mistaken in thinking this is a, a Jalo parody and they were coming out at this time as well. So yeah, it feels like a Jalo, but diverging into these other genres as well. And at times, like I said before, it almost borders on Carry On because it feels quite aware and tongue in cheek. And we have this introduction to the characters of Lucia and Carlo and they're both acting in this ridiculous oversex manner with Lucia's walk by the pool where she swings her hips as she strolls on by in a tiny bikini and every man turns his head at the sight of her and it's just ridiculously over exaggerated but then equally we have Carlo who isn't leaving much to the imagination and his budgie smugglers and he chats Lucia up saying she can be a model for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and she seems a little bit sceptical but equally willing to go along with it for a career um, and they end up having it away in the sauna with another character peeping through the, no the door annoyed because Carlo promised her that she'd be a model as well so it definitely feels like that bit it's played for laughs and yeah. it's it's very much the character of Carlo that we're being introduced to here this oversexed hyper masculine man who beds all the women at the modeling agency he doesn't really give a shit he's very misogynistic and I think the women around him are quite wise to that fact um even if they do drop their clothes for him and um, he's very much a caricature even by Jalo standards and he's quite far removed from the Lotharios of the genre he's not a George Hilton or even an Anthony Stephan he doesn't really have that debonair allure and yeah we're under 
are no illusion about what kind of person he is and he's pretty outrageous as a character in terms of his piggish attitude and um, everyone in the agency knows this and I think it Mario says to him at one point oh you're up to your old tricks when he announces Lucia's coming aboard and we know Carlo's a bit of a wrong and he's it's played for laughs and he's just a shameless womanizer and the residence leaves of the agency so he is a very crass character and he's certainly why the film has a reputation for being a certain way or at least partly the reason um, behind the film's reputation. But I think it's very intentional and he's crass and obnoxious, but so overtly so that in some ways he's almost likable. But yeah, like the film is so outrageous when it comes to sex that I think calling it misogynistic implies that there's a real nastiness behind it. But the comical nature of how sex is treated throughout makes it feel not particularly ill-intentioned. I do think it's kind of played for laughs. And like, again, the examples that you've given about, you know, Gisela and all these sorts of, and, and Maurizio, these sorts of characters that have this comic facet to them as to that. Yeah, like you say, I mean, he's certainly milking that job title of senior photographer at the Albatross for all it's worth when he approaches Lucia. Like you say, he's a sexist, leery, scheming creep, but he's our main character. I kept thinking of Death Carries a Cane and how we spent more time with Robert Hoffman in that film when we really wanted to spend more time with Susan Scott. And it's sort of the same way here in that you'd rather spend more time with Magda. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison, actually, because Magda seems like such an interesting character and somebody who's kind of got her own mind and she's a professional woman and she's got a real sense of humor throughout the film but we never really see enough of her I mean she's obviously got this keen eye for photography and that keen eye allows her to see who the suspect is in a pivotal scene I think her seemingly strong character is undermined a bit about how easily like led she is by Carlo and how she kind of almost throws herself at him yeah it's a little bit difficult to I mean it's not the kind of film where you would expect too much in terms of character motivation and well-written characters but it's still a little bit difficult to see what Magda sees in him yeah especially with the ending being kind of a possible well, we'll get into the ending later that's a whole different story but um, yeah it's kind of a positive ending for the pair so it's not even like well actually he is revealed to be this monstrous person and she goes off and does something better it's yeah there's a strange appeal but maybe that's part of like like what I said earlier maybe because despite being crass and obnoxious there's something strangely likable about him because yeah. he's so over the top I mean his personality so, sort of seems to from um, Nino Castanovo seems to shine through that seems quite likable because the character in himself isn't particularly likable is he <laughs> maybe that's a large part of it actually it's just his Nino's performance comes through I don't really think of it like that because it's almost frustrating why do I like this person he's like an awful human being but um I think he just plays it in such a charming way it doesn't really play him as those characteristics in a way yeah that's fair Edwidge's role is uncharacteristically small for her really isn't it yeah, considering she's touted as the leading female of the piece, she doesn't appear all that much. And there's there's quite a few characters here. So I suppose she's vying for screen time with lots of other interesting characters. Maybe some of those secondary characters have more focus than they would have done in another film. Again, maybe because that comical aspect's played up through those characters. Yeah, and it's also quite um, set-piece driven, which means that we spend quite a lot of time with some of these set-pieces. And that sort of sidelines both her and Carlo. I suppose. Yeah, it's certainly not a film for character development, is it? No. Yeah, there, there's interesting glimmers in there where you can go, oh, I'm quite fascinated by this character. Like, um, I mean, it's a film called Strip Nude for Your Killer. Obviously, there's lots of nudity. Um, but for all the discussion of women stripping for the killer, there's plenty of men in various states of undress as well throughout the film and, and dispatched by the female killer. And one character that interests me in particular is the character of Maurizio. And he's painted as a comical figure, but also I think he comes across as a very tragic figure throughout the film which makes him quite compelling 
um, even though he's disgusting in many ways. And he's married to Gisela, who embodies that predatory lesbian trope and won't sleep with her husband. Yeah. So Maurizio's desperate to sleep with the models, but they're far from interested, of course, because he's this overweight slob of a man who's a bit pathetic. But Maurizio begs Doris, one of the models, to sleep with him and he offers her money and he then forces himself on her and she shouts that he's crushing her in this absolutely mortifying moment. But yeah, he's painted as a disgusting figure in his oversized white pants as he kind of waddles round and carrying all this excess weight and it's a stark contrast to the figure Carlo cuts because I think it's the next scene that we then see Carlo in like a tiny pair of of white pants so it's almost like you're invited to make this um, comparison between the two men and how different they are Uh, but even when Doris gives in and says she's going to have sex with Maurizio he can't get up and he sobs away and she has to try and coax him into it and in that moment he feels very much like an emasculated man akin to a child in his behaviour and Doris dismissively tells him that he's not the first man to go through it and to get a grip and then Maurizio confesses that he's never been with a woman and it's his mother that promised him that he would but it's never quite happened for him which seems peculiar seeing as he's married but the whole thing like it just strikes you that Doris has a sense of duty and she's doing it out of sympathy and Maurizio is a man to be pitied she can't even fear him as you know somebody who's about to assault her because he can't even really do that competently I mean, he's a man with mummy issues and he clutches that blow-up doll and that's probably one of the most famous visuals from the, the film and he, he tells the doll that she's the only woman that can make it happen for him. Yeah, it's a really tragic image and obviously there's a sense of ridicule here and we're invited to laugh at him but I also think there's something really sad about the scene and his situation and for all the talk of misogyny in the film, it really feels like we should hone in as well on how Maurizio's presented and the sexual humiliation he faces and in death it's a woman that penetrates him with her blade as well which again shows him to be this emasculated male so um for me i find him to be the most interesting character of the piece and maybe i'm kind of looking into that a bit too much maybe it's just that he's supposed to be this comical character but i think if you're going to get quite funny about the misogyny there's obviously that counterbalance argument to be made that the men don't always come across in the best way either there's certainly not very many characters here that's painted in a positive light is there i mean magda gets away more or less unscathed but apart from that it's it's like new york ripper in in terms of likable characters really isn't it yeah it's almost like we're just to hate everybody and yeah they're all a bit suspect as characters i wouldn't say we're necessarily are we rooting for the killer would you say in this film are you rooting for carlo and magda i think there's a certain amount of likability that you still want them to succeed Certainly with Magda, there's a likability there. With Carlo, like you say, considering how much of a bastard he is, <laughs> you kind of struggle with it yourself to want him to do well. But yeah, you're definitely on Magda's side. Yeah, and the relationship between Carlo and Magda is quite interesting in itself, I suppose, because it's such a different relationship to the type that Finette usually is involved in in these films. And again, like obviously it's a different type of character, but um, there's a lot more back and forth between the two and these comedic moments. And she doesn't feel like that doe-eyed, delicate, female of Finette's kind of previous Shelley or I think she's rather like a challenger to Carlo isn't she someone that can keep up with him or try and keep him in check and they do have nice chemistry I'd say yeah for sure and I really like those like you mentioned the the comedy of it as well when Carlo brings Lucia to the studio and Magda kills her with with a few choice lines there straight away like pay for your own hookers out of your own pockets in the Italian version and you can pay the girl for prior services in in the English version yeah I was gonna say there's there's one that's kind of similar like that I'm not 100% sure about the translation aspect because the English subtitles are like nothing like a woman Parker and then Magda replies to Carlo is better than being a nosy one like you which is like a it's a funny nice bit of wordplay in English but I'm not sure how that translates exactly in Italian didn't really think to check it 
Yeah, like lines like that kind of reinforces their interest in chemistry and the comedic tone. Yeah. Any other examples? Because there's tons in the film, aren't there? When Carlo suggests that they should use Lucci in the photo shoot and Magda goes, how are we going to photograph all that stuff? We need a Cinerama screen. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good line, yeah. <laughs> Such a good insult. But again, it just shows the self-awareness because it's not like it's this really deeply misogynistic film where everyone's um, doing these horrible things to women in that kind of nihilistic New York ripper way. There's a lot of fun that's had with it. I'm not saying that's necessarily right, like if you're looking at it from a more um, socially progressive point of view, but there's certainly... Uh, a lot of comedy to be had in those kind of sexual situations. Yeah. I think what's so difficult about the film is that if you show this to a newcomer, they will get caught up in the sex of it and the really quite explicit violence. So it's difficult to look past that. That's all you're going to see. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I think for us, that you know, being familiar with the genre, we can kind of just see that it's a bit silly and it has its roots and um, Italian sex comedies and it's played for laughs in part but yeah I think there's obviously elements here that are hard to look past and I think we can mention that as well I mean you mentioned that Giselle is this like predatory lesbian and there are like issues with the, the LGBT characterization as well isn't there yeah like you've got the character of Mario who's a photographer that is similar like to the photographer in the case of the bloody iris and there's quite a few of these sorts of rules throughout the shallow and they're just very like you know camp gay man like played for laughs and there's not much nuance there which is unfortunate and that's something that really does stand out these days makes you cringe quite a bit yeah so i just remembered another one that made me laugh it's like when mario was get like on the subject of mario when he's having his whiskey poured for him by the killer and she fills it a bit too much and it starts to overflow and then he has this look of like abject horror like what are you doing he's like absolutely horrified <laughs> what do you do with my jb <laughs> that you've um destroyed it i think i mentioned mentioned this in my notes for the production design but there's also that moment when you're in the studio and you see all these like b boxes everywhere yeah it's like almost a bit too obvious well who knows but like we've discussed there are certainly these self-aware moments alongside the comedy um some of the comments made about the agency and how it operates could easily be applied to the film business itself the high turnover of employees the short shelf life of those involved and there's these nice parallels drawn between the expiration of the models in the film and expiration in terms of their deaths and bianchi plays with our expectations on several occasions for example in the red bath club scene we see two women kiss sharing an intimate moment and it's filmed in a very stylized way and we're seeing this occur between two women and then the camera draws back and we see an audience and again it feels like as the director he's challenging our role as the spectator and that sexual voyeurism of the audience which is interesting it's also worth noting that the women in that scene appear mannequin like and they don't feel like real women when we see that first shot of them it is almost like a jess franco type scene isn't it yeah no that's actually a really good comparison it's very much like a franco scene yeah because they, they don't feel like real women but almost like props and i think that's yeah. touched upon a couple of times throughout the film where we're aware of the commodification of the models at albatross and they're a product to be consumed and sex is also a product to be sold and for example Carlo describes Lucia as first class merchandise so there's this idea that the models aren't really real people they're almost you know like mannequins or a product to be consumed yeah and of course both um, Erna Schura and Solvi Stubing who plays Patrizia and Doris worked as models as well at least Erna Schura worked for Harper's Bazaar and Vogue so <laughs> very very familiar with that world yeah it's funny that tie-in between them because they explicitly yeah, reference those magazines yeah another moment there I was just thinking of um, about yeah Bianchi being aware of his audience is like that fantastic moment when Magda just, Magda just robes and takes off her negligee and 
as she's about to bear all, she throws it over the camera lens and obscures her body, which feels like a rather wry visual gag from Bianchi. He's almost like teasing his audience yeah. here and playing with their expectations. It's kind of, yeah, that parallel between that scene and that the red bays club scene where you feel like it's yeah. you're very aware of your role as the spectator there. Oh, for sure. I love that shot when she throws the, the yeah, the negligee over the, the camera. Yeah, it's just really, I think that's why like the film's just so much fun, isn't it? Because you have these like little self-referential nods and you just constantly feel like he's very aware of what he's doing and, and being the film with lots of comedic moments in different ways you've got like, the visual gags like you know like the wordplay and various bits and pieces um it just really gives it that sense of fun in the midst of all this murder and mayhem i know because it's like it's like there's a lot of murder but it ticks along quite nicely and like you say it tonally it kind of changes up a bit because you've got these vicious murders and this idea tying back to abortion and then you've got everyone kind of running around and in their pants and making jokes about <laughs> this that and the other and we should probably mention the killer here as well who's not wearing the traditional fedora but a motorcycle outfit even though she never gets anywhere near a motorbike but the outfit obviously brings Massimo Delamano's what have you done to your daughters to mind and also look that would be later used in both Lenzi's Nightmare Beach from 1989 and Lamberta Barber's Body Puzzle from 1992 how do you feel about the motorcycle look for a giallo killer I quite like it. I, I mean, I always kind of associate it with what have they done to your daughters rather than um, stripping to your killer, even though I'm, for most people, I suppose it's the opposite. But it's, it's a nice update on the usual Jalo killer, isn't it? I think sometimes it gets a bit samey or it feels like you're retreading on the tropes. And I think it's a nice way of incorporating the idea of the Jalo killer, but making them slightly different. I mean, yeah. I said it doesn't really serve a purpose, does it? Because there's they, they aren't like a motorcycle rider and it's not like a clue to their identity. But maybe the fact it's skin tight and it's the women's interesting in itself. Yeah, I I suppose it's a bit more practical if, if you're going to be around town this rather than looking like a blood and black lace type killer yeah especially we're in the mid-70s so it feels like maybe that's a bit tired and i think it photographs really well you know i love that scene with mario's death where the killer is pouring out the jnb and then we get that profile of them it's yeah. very effective yeah. visually and of course the killer doesn't use the conventional weapon really either do they no so it's kind of along those lines but it's more of a just a straight knife isn't it rather than a open-edged razor yeah it's more a stiletto type knife isn't it yeah i feel like it's such a tired and well trod bit of analysis here so i apologize in advance but in a tripnid fear killer the knife is a murder weapon just feels very phallic in nature especially when we examine the themes at the heart of the film and in the murder of mario we see that pov shot of the killer holding the knife in the center of the shot and it's almost transposed over mario's genitals and it feels reminiscent of the opening shot of the abortion and this intrusive violation of the body which is penetrated so i certainly feel like there's a connection between mario's murder and evelyn's death and there's perhaps a tying to the abortion and that idea of sexual violation ties into the murder of stefano and doris where they're essentially mutilated before they're murdered with Doris's breasts cut off and Stefano's um, genitals mutilated and it's a really nasty kind of vicious um, visual probably one of the worst in the film and yeah it's that idea of violation again um, that was in the opening abortion scene and that carries on here it's like coming back to what you said again about abortion and how it wasn't um, legalised in Italy until 1978 and there's all sorts of issues surrounding that. I mean, I don't want to get into it too much because I discussed it in my essay for the hour release of the film. You know, using a blade in that kind of violating manner ties back to the abortion scene at the film's opening. And nobody's claiming that this is a sensitive um, treatment of the subject, but it does touch on these themes and maybe it is in a ridiculous manner, but it's, it's a product of its time and it's reflective of that to a certain extent then um even with the film's final line which we'll get into later but any in many ways it's a film about revenge and the source of that revenge is this abortion that's gone um, wrong partly because of the way it was conducted 
partly because of societal attitudes of the time. So I find that really interesting and this idea that Patrizia is almost kind of taking back control by being a woman who then penetrates the bodies of others in the way that her sister's body was violated and that led to her death and the circumstances surrounding it. Yeah, because that opening scene with with Evelyn dropped in the tub where you can hear the water running is where it all comes back to. And the water running is is a motif that comes back through the film and the killer turns the taps on or pours the glass of J&B so it overflows. And it's like a ritual for Patrizia where something reminds her of why she's doing this and similar to the way that the killers in Profondo Rosso from the same year used the children's song to sort of motivate themselves and running water is as you've mentioned several times before it's a recurring motif in Argento films but it's less overt there and more implying something about the killer's state of mind but here it's very closely connected to to a specific course isn't it yeah absolutely i mean it's quite clear here i don't think it's particularly subtle as a motif works very well especially you know having a motif in terms of sound rather than a visual i I like that aspect of it the argento film that makes me think of is trauma because i feel like water is such an element of that and then that's another film surrounding kind of childbirth and um so it's quite interesting in itself that he later does a film that kind of touches upon similar themes with the use of water oh yeah that's interesting i didn't make that connection it's funny thinking of, um, yeah, because then you say like the whiskey getting spilt and there's like an old saying here, which is like today's rain is tomorrow's whiskey. So you can take it back even further and say it's like rain <laughs> and water. I was thinking of that water actually, because when Carlos introduced the swimming pool, there's obviously water splashing and it returns as well when Carla and Magda are sitting by the fountain towards the end. So it feels like the water is pouring around him, a, a reminder of what he's responsible for. I'm not sure if that's just like incidental and me like looking too much into it. No, I think I think you're right, because I had that down in my notes as well. I, I definitely think it's deliberate that water appears frequently around his character and especially in this kind of huge quantity because of course you know carlo is the one that was implicated in the death of evelyn exactly which i don't know should we get onto that now or not yeah let's get on to that carlo's responsibility for evelyn's well i say responsibility well how, how do you read it in terms of how involved carlo is there well, I mean, when he explains it to Magda, he says that he was only responsible for fixing Evelyn up with a doctor. But I read it as that he's the one that's responsible for knocking her up. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the way I feel about it as well. And I wasn't sure. I was like, I feel like maybe I'm reading it in the wrong way or something. But I'm glad that you think the same because it just makes so much more sense if he's the culpable one in all of his behaviour yeah. throughout the film. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense. But then the ending is kind of at odds with that. But maybe it's this idea that's in, in well, I say implied. It's not. Well, I suppose it is implied because he's saying that he's not responsible when we, the audience, know that he is. Yeah, because Patrice is saving him for last. So it's. I think it's reasonable to sort of assume that that he was the one that was responsible for impregnating her. And I'm reading the the very last scene as well. She says she's on the pill, and he's like, better not to run any risk as and turning her over for anal sex is just him trying to keep himself out of trouble from going through this again exactly it's like as a final scene it's obviously played for laughs after everything that's happened but if you read into it that carl is one that's responsible and he's joking around about how he doesn't want to um impregnate someone again so he's gonna well I mean, you say anal sex but basically the implication there isn't it that he's gonna anally rape her and then yeah. it's like oh we're all laughing oh, yeah. at the end so yeah it's quite an ending considering the themes in the film very extreme I and mean, for all the comical aspects I and mean, you look into that part and that's quite something 
Yeah, because that one scene is often brought up by people when this film is discussed. So even with like films like this or Giallo Venezia or plenty of others, that's still quite a shocking moment. Well, I've just got here my notes even. I was just like, I think that has to be one of the most memorable endings in the Giallo, but for different reasons than most, isn't it? Yeah. And that's really what stays with you. I'm, I think it was Kingsman, wasn't it, that came out? I can't remember when Kingsman came out, but it has an anal rape like, joke in it as well. Just me. <laughs> to think maybe it was came from this film probably not but it's something that would be yeah because it is something that would be shocking by modern standards i remember when that film came out so many people were like to me that was such a shocking moment so and this is 1975 and he's supposed to be implicated in getting evelyn pregnant in the first place so yeah you from a census point of view you can see certainly see the problem with that scene in in like a straw dogs kind of way yeah, definitely. And it'd be really interesting to see how this film would fare with a different director with changes to the script. Like if they dialed back the comic elements and just kept the basic premise of it's this man that gets a woman pregnant and then she has to have an abortion that goes wrong and this person is then trying to enact their revenge and all the people that they felt that their sister harm. I think that would be quite interesting. Because I mean, yeah. like what have you done to Solange is the obvious other like film that tackles the concept of abortion as we've discussed. It does have sleazier elements but that's far more serious as a treatment of the subject so yeah. you could certainly see a film the film being a bit more like in that style with different direction yeah it very much feels like that film came out in a different era than this one I mean if you look at the Poliziotesky films as well I think they um, that contributed to making the cello genre more violent and brutal as well yeah I mean you definitely see that reflected in like the mid to late 70s entries there's definitely this need to kind of one up or like a need to be more shocking than they yeah. were before and like when you watch like Plitsky films they are so violent in places like shockingly so even now yeah so you can see how that would impact but then equally you know like sexy comedies if people are wanting to go to the cinema to see that then you really are going to have to deliver the more like sexual aspects so it can't be as chaste or it can't be as um I don't know it, it's hard because obviously there's so many films that we categorize as shally but they're not all titillating some of them do kind of take a, a harsher tone on these ideas about sex yeah, and we, of course, have to mention when Carl explains to Magda that Evelyn and Patricia were sisters and there was something much more between them than just the old sisterly love. And I believe the Italian dub refers to it as an unhealthy bond between the two sisters. So it feels like they're definitely adding some salacious aspect to that relationship as well, not just her claiming revenge for her sister, but that there's like a incestuous relationship between the two sisters. Yeah, it feels like it's kind of shoehorned in there for shock value, doesn't it? Yeah. Just to add another dimension to all the sexual depravity that's gone before it. I mean, again, I don't think it's really necessary, but I think in terms of the what the film presents it fits as you'd expect. It's, it's certainly not unexpected in the hands of Andrea Bianchi. Yeah, it's not like we're looking for subtlety. No. And um, from his work. Again, it's, it's interesting to imagine, you know, what somebody would have done differently uh, with the material. It's just kind of thrown in there that line. Because there are some problems with the scripts. For example, why kill Lucia? Because she wasn't around at the agency at the time of Evelyn's death, for example. Yeah, and it's also like, how much are the other members of the agency involved in what happened? We don't really get enough of an insight into what went before. So I suppose you can only really speculate because obviously Carlo is to blame, but we're not really sure how the others are. Unless, you know, they were like... I'm kind of just imagining maybe that they were funny about her having to go away and have this abortion and maybe she lost her job because of her health issues and had to enact revenge and then her sister enacted revenge that way but 
you never really see it. So as you say, you've got a character who wasn't even involved that gets murdered. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a, a mistake. And then you've got characters who are murdered that don't really seem to be involved all that much. No, exactly. And the killer spares Magda and just burns the negatives, choosing instead to leave her unconscious at the next crime scene. But that's a tactic that's, that's not going to fool anybody, is it? No, it's like, again, why would you spare Magda's life, though? Yeah. Make any sense. It just, yeah, it doesn't hold up quite so much when you start to look into it, but I don't think anyone would really be that bothered. No, again, it's one of those films where you don't really have the time to because it's moving along at a brisk pace, so you don't have time to look at it closely in terms of plot. Yeah. I think the red herrings are, are fairly good. I mean, Carlo's established as there's one scene fairly early on when he's in the flat with Magda and he puts in her in a chokehold after she mentions Lucia was brought to the agency by him and later on he also verbally attacks Giselle but Stefano is used in an even better way I think because he's not really appearing in much of the film so it feels like it could be one of those characters that's sort of forgotten about and then he appears in Doris's flat towards the end of the film and there's good reason to suspect him since he's shown to appear in that photo that Carla took of Giselle's murder but he just turns out to be another misogynistic arsehole as well it's timed quite nicely that moment and when we get that insight into their relationship and Stefano's character and you almost believe for a second that he might be involved but yeah he just it's just part of the course for a film which deals with pretty horrible characters Shall we move on to the production history then? Let's do it. So the film started shooting on February 3rd, 1975, under the title La Tenere Braccia della Morte, The Tender Clutch of Death. It was shot on location and at Isa de Paoli Studios in Milan. The producers, the Simonetti brothers, who were apparently nicknamed the Lie Brothers because of the many broken promises and unpaid bills they left behind them. According to the assistant director, Daniele San Giorgi, the Simonetti brothers made sure that the films were shot extremely quickly in about two weeks time to save money. I'm not sure if that was the schedule here but since the camera started rolling in February and the film got its rating in late June it certainly won't have been a protracted shot with a 12 week schedule it might well have been a two week schedule it was shot by Franco Delicoli who's a cousin of the more well known cinematographer Tonino Delicoli and Franco was an experienced DOP and he'd worked steadily since the early 60s shooting about 25 features including Jolly like Date for Murder and Delamana's What Have They Done to Your Daughters like we've mentioned several times I think it's a well shot film a lot of the action takes place at night even more so than usual I think and it like we mentioned it contributes to giving this film a skewed feels like a skewed version of reality where everything's centred around the glamour and the nightclubs and the CD model agency you know I agree with you about um, Franco Delacolli's cinematography I think it's actually a really well shot film considering I mean I know like a lot of people say it's trash and I can understand that point of view in terms of if the plot if you're kind of a bit more skeptical about you know Jali and genre cinema and are a bit harsher with your judgments but I mean visually it looks great like say that the club scene is really impressive and I also really like those scenes where Magda's in the photo studio and there's that kind of pinky purple light behind her and then she goes through I think they're like, it's almost like a fence. I know it's not a fence, but when you kind of see that image of her going between the slats and just some nice compositions like that throughout. And yeah, like the nighttime yeah. scenes when you see the killer and they're quite atmospheric. It never feels yeah. like truly scary, I would say, because I don't think that's what they're going for with the no. film. But I think, yeah, there's some nice compositions and nice angled shots. 
Yeah, I mean, if people think that it's trash, then then it's very good looking trash. Yeah, absolutely. Well, talking about those interiors, I'll move on to the film's production design. There's a fair bit to say, so I'll try and limit myself here. Much of the film's action takes place at the Albatross Modeling Agency, so naturally there's plenty of glamour on display, most, most notably an abundance of fur coats worn by multiple characters. The motorbike fashion shoot features his and her fur coats worn in a suitably risque fashion, and there's much talk about them and how to advertise them convincingly. I love that Doris is told it's a wonderful fur coat that you're wearing now make the guy who wants to buy it want to come just a, a lovely like sleazy line <laughs> um, the world of advertising I suppose it's accurate yeah, and it's just very much part of the course for a film that revels in its sleazy side the fur coats were supplied by Milanese Ferrier Delara a very high end brand that's been in existence since 1885 and is still going today Lorenzo Sorello Fur Fashions also are credited with supplying some of the furs but um, it's a defunct company um, in the present I believe anyway rightfully they're some ethical questions surrounding fur but it was very commonplace in films of this period and it was a coveted fashion item obviously used here to highlight the opulent world of modelling signifying wealth, style and status as well as the obvious link to death and I think at one point during the aforementioned shoot Carlo says put a flag over them and they'll really look like corpses when they're wearing the coats which says it all. Naturally it's worth mentioning the swimwear in the film arguably the most memorable fashion item in Strip Need Free Killer is Carlo's minute checkered swimming trunks in pink, brown and green a very bold and interesting look um, styled with a pair of tinted aviators and a Levi's tote bag um, in the style of a back pocket of a pair of jeans and then we have Lucia's equally scandalous look which consists of a small brown paisley print bikini which raises the temperature of the men poolside both looks are very deliberate very much designed to catch the eye inviting the audience to go and the fact that Carlo has his camera in Lucia's face intrusively taking these photos feels very self-aware and like we mentioned earlier in the podcast I feel you know Bianchi's playing with his audience a little here it feels very much like he knows what his audience wants and dials it up to almost comical levels. Um, as I said, Carlo carries a Levi's tote bag and I'm sure quite a few of you will have noticed the numerous posters and adverts for Levi's throughout the film. Therefore, it won't come as much of a surprise to learn that Levi's provided the wardrobes for Nino and Edvidge and no doubt wanted prominent advertising for the brand, hence all the posters and the set design. You'll also note lots of chunky knitwear featured throughout the film, which is courtesy of Idexer Dinor Pret-a-Porter. Um, we also see a lot of blouses and fitted skirts with splits, perfect for a professional setting but also to flash your underwear in nether regions. Um, there's mostly a colour palette of light browns and greens and more earthy autumnal colours, uh, which is also reflected in the film's interiors. And the film features some rather nice early 1970s interiors. Magda's flat in particular is rather interesting, almost set like a stage with a small set of stairs leading up to a platform, which fits in perfectly with this awareness of the audience and, and the way Bianchi fo- pokes fun at his audience and their expectations throughout. But Magda's flat is quite busy, floral brown wallpaper and avocado floors, very what people would probably consider 1970s but fitting for someone in the creative industries I think I, I especially like the dining chairs which I think are very retro now probably probably pay like 250 quid for one of those second hands <laughs> yeah. I was quite impressed by those of the chrome in comparison to Magda's flat we have Mario's flat which features a similar colour scheme with lighter greens his walls are adorned with blown up black and white photographs of models on the walls which is a nice touch for a photographer um, his flat also features a tree print feature wall that feels quite modern by today's standards all of the interiors featured have plenty of interesting artwork, often with a rather 1970s futurism slant. And Magda has quite a few paintings of 
this nature in our home that feel almost science fiction like, often in purples and pinks and featuring silver orbs and spaceships. And Maurizio's home also um, has quite a few pieces of art in this style. And then we've got the agency itself, a typical creative space littered with boxes of J&B. The blood red office of Gisela seems a suitably macabre colour and it's plastered with adverts for Levi's and other brands of the period. Again, like you said earlier, they don't feel like particularly professional spaces. It feels a bit seedy, doesn't it? And the spaces the characters traverse are really enhanced by Deli Colley's sublime cinematography. He really captures the environments of the film and we see some interesting angles and compositions throughout. And I think there's one shot of Magda's flat where it's kind of angled from above, which is quite interesting and you really get to see the whole um, flat and it's 1970s glory so lots of interest here in terms of production design when it comes to the music it was written by the calgary sardinian born berto pisano and i mentioned before the opening track with the wah guitar and the trumpet and how it's got a sort of slightly harder and funkier edge to it than you normally find in a in a giallo people often mention how this is quite similar to the opening of the temptations papa was a rolling stone and it, it's a pretty apparent influence more or less identical with a vocalization here substituting the strings on the original but Pisano had a background as a jazz musician and you can hear some jazz influence in some of the more solemn themes as well there's also a few bossa nova influenced themes with wordless vocals and the harpsichords there are one or two of the cues that feel a bit out of place like when Magda's trying to get away from the killer and the agency it sounds almost like a love theme is playing but overall I think it's a really great score and it's I know it's one that quite a few people would like to see released on on CD or vinyl. Pisano would work with Bianchi again on several locations in Malabimba and on Burial Ground as well. I really like the funk style and pieces. Yeah. That's more kind of my, my style. So in terms of like you know the music for this film I know like sometimes I talk about previous scores I'm like oh I'm not such a fan of this one but some of it doesn't work for me like you say some of it feels a bit like jarring but I, I do like the funk stuff yeah this and Demarcy's score for New York Ripper has got that quite funky edge to it hasn't it yeah which is interesting because that's one of my favourite scores I've yeah. always liked it because of that like funk influence so I've yeah I never really thought about the comparison between the two but no that's a good point and then interesting that they have similar subject matter and being quite sleazy titles maybe funk just lends itself more to sleaze. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, the film received its censorship visa with an 18 certificate on June 28th, 1975, and it was released in Italian cinemas in late August when the Italians were back from their vacation. And it fed okay at the box office, making 342 million lira which on what was probably like a 70 or 80 million budget. It wasn't the most successful giallo that year, obviously, Deep Red making 3.7 billion and Suspicious Death of a Minor and autopsy making around the 500 million lira mark but still decent box office when it comes to international releases few will be surprised to hear that the bbfc in in the uk had problems with the film it was rated x in 1979 with five minutes cut out and i found this wonderful passage from from the cea newsletter in october 1985 which says everything about the bbfc's relationship with the film Note that the BBFC has withdrawn the film until a new and more acceptable English title is approved. Yeah, that is, it says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Bianchi would continue to work in the exploitation fields. The following year, he directed Carol Baker and Adolfo Cheli in The Salacious Confessions of a Frustrated Housewife, a film that is not really mentioned in, in Baker's autobiography. Funny that. In fact, none of her, none of her Italian films are, are really mentioned in, in the list of filmographies. As, and then she made quite a few films in Italy during her stint there. <laughs> so they're not even mentioned by name. It's such a shame, though, because it'd, really it'd be really interesting to know 
our thoughts but as we said kind of yeah. talking about Nino a lot of actors are a bit funny about some of their Italian productions which you can understand why yeah the same in um, David Hemming's autobiography it's not even very much on Deep Red and certainly not much on like Heroin Busters how could you dismiss your excellent work on Heroin Busters I'm offended <laughs> yeah exactly some of us like that film David Bianchi directed a, a couple of comedies in the following years and then his most well-known films the Exorcist ripoff or possession film Malabimba in 1979 and then the classic zombie flick Burial Ground uh, The Knights of Terror in 1981 and he sporadically returned to the thriller sort of slash horror genre in the 1980s like the French production Maniac Killer in 1987 and Massacre as well which was part of that Lucha Fulci Presents set of films i watched this the other day he shot an action film called commando mengele or angel of death for eurocine with a script that was penned by jess franco and starred jack taylor and chris mitchum and a scene chewing howard vernon as joseph mengele trying to create a race of sort of monkey men and the fourth reich it's not great and then he mostly concentrated on erotic films and apparently some flat out porn under the name andrew white or as in the case of commando mengele a frank drew White. According to some sources, Bianchi directed an unreleased children's film in, in 1993, though it's hard to think of a more inappropriate director for that kind of venture, really. <laughs> Yeah. He died in Nice in France at the age of 88 on November 14th, 2013. Quite a life, quite a career. He certainly yeah. has his fans, though. I think, you know, if you do like your films on the sleazier side, he definitely delivers. Yeah, you can't go wrong with a Bianchi film if you're wanting film on the on the sleazier side now, I agree. Like, one of the third right, I remember watching that when I went through a period of, like, those watching those films for some reason, and it was pretty bad even by his standards. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, again, we, we've spoken about that before as well, how some directors that managed to deliver some really well put together films in, in the 1970s and then by the 1980s, it feels like they've forgotten how to direct a film altogether. And I mean, in this case, they only did like one or two takes here because they were shooting on such a compressed schedule over like just a few weeks. He still manages to come out with a, a good looking film that holds together, even though there are problems with the script. Yeah. Yeah, it works really well for what is. I mean, it certainly delivers and it's seen as one of the favourites of fans nowadays. So he certainly got it right. I mean, it's it's derivative to a point and that's fine. That works. It's well shot. It's well done. Impressive considering the constraints there. Perhaps one of the most provocatively named titles in the Jalo, Strip Nude for Your Killer, exemplifies many of the quintessential components of the genre exaggerated to almost ludicrously comical levels. It's clear to see why the film is such a fan favourite, leaning heavily into the genre's established tropes with lashings of ultraviolence and nudity, alongside a captivating leaded performance from shallow screen queen Edwidge Finnick. Whilst the film is certainly more on the exploitative side, there's a self-awareness on Bianchi's part and a willingness to paint all of his characters in a less than complimentary light, treating his male and female characters as products to be consumed for the entertainment of his audience. Strip Nude for Your Killer might not be the most artful or intelligent entry of the genre, but it delivers scandalous thrills and a fun mystery, whilst never taking itself too seriously, which makes it an utterly enjoyable and rather body watch. Not the kind of film you'd start off with, but I agree with everything you say. If you can look past or at least live with like the film's shortcomings, it is a really tight little thriller, isn't it? Yeah, it's good fun. I think, you know, it's one of those films that people return to time and time again. Like, there's a reason for that. And Deli Corley's cinematography really helps out as well. Yeah, and seeing the release by Arrow on Blu-ray was really quite a treat. And it looks great. 
Before we go, we just want to give a shout out to a friend of the show, writer David Sodergren, who's got a new book out, Maggie's Grave. You can pick that one up as well as his other books, The Forgotten Island, Night Shoot and Dead Girl Blues on Amazon. Yep, check them out. So we are very excited to tell you about our next Patreon episode, which deviates from what we've done up until this point. We decided quite a few months back to conceive our own idea for a shadow after Massimo e Massimo, who kindly let us use their music for our Patreon episode theme, offered to compose a fictional piece for a fictional film. So we've been busily working away on our concept for a film. Um, it's not something set in the present day, but rather something we framed as a lost shadow that incorporates many of the components that we love about the genre. So we're really looking forward to discussing the film's title, its concept, at pictures, music, setting, artwork, etc. Um, and that'll be with you next month. So we won't reveal too much about that. We'll leave the title a mystery for now. Yeah, but it's going to be fun. Yeah, it's a really cool idea. We're very excited about it. It's been something we've been busily working on. So we hope you enjoy it and see where the, some of the ideas came from. Of course, you know, you can support us in other ways other than the Patreon. Um, you can f- feel free to give us a rating on iTunes or even better review. We really appreciate anyone that takes the time out to help spread the word about Fragments of Fear. So again, thank you to everyone who has already done that. And if you want to find us on social media you can find us on facebook at fragments pod instagram as fragments pod on twitter as rachel underscore nisbet or senior ward or you can mail us at fragmentspod at gmail.com we'd like to thank the wonderful ozarks for allowing us to use their cover of the main titles to seven blood saint orchids for our fragments of fear theme music and that's available to buy via their bandcap at ozarks.bandcamp.com that wraps up our first episode of year two of fragments of fear we really hope you've enjoyed our take on a far more well-known title this time around and please let us know your thoughts and if you'd like us to take a look at a more popular title once again sometime in the future thank you for listening and again thank you all so much for your support over the last year we really hope you enjoy what we have in store for fragments of fear going into 2021 and beyond